We'll hear argument first in number 928346, Terry Lee Shannon v. United States. Mr. Trout. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case requires the Court to determine whether and under what circumstances it is appropriate for a trial court to instruct the jury that in the event of a not guilty solely by reason of insanity verdict, that the accused will be committed to a mental hospital. Hereafter, I will simply refer to the form of verdict as an NGI verdict. The case comes about because of the passage by Congress in 1984 of the IDRA, the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. That act was passed in part in reaction to the unfortunate events surrounding the assassination attempt of President Reagan. The Congress had been considering insanity defense reform for some time before that, however, and this simply was the event that pushed the Congress to agreement. Prior to the passage of that act, there was no provision outside the District of Columbia for the mandatory commitment of a defendant acquitted in a federal prosecution because of insanity. In fact, there was no not guilty by insanity verdict as such. There was simply the general verdicts guilty or not guilty. The IDRA changed that and prescribed a form of verdict which is not guilty solely by reason of insanity. The Congress, in adopting this law, modeled it closely on the District of Columbia Act, which of course also was a congressional enactment. Mr. Trout, when you say Congress modeled it closely on the District of Columbia Act, what do you mean, that they looked to the District of Columbia Act only? There's no evidence from the legislative history that I can find, Your Honor, that they looked anywhere else. Is there evidence in the legislative history that they did look at the District of Columbia Act? Yes, there's quite a bit of evidence that they did. In the Senate report, which is the most comprehensive report in the legislative history about the adoption of this act, the reference to the D.C. Code provisions are quite numerous. And throughout the report, the Congress in particular paid close attention to the disposition that was to be made of the accused in the event he was found not guilty solely by reason of insanity, and most closely modeled the IDRA on the D.C. enactment with regard to that disposition. I think that is why it is so relevant to the issue that we have before the Court today, because we are dealing with what happens to the accused in the event he's found not guilty solely by reason of insanity. The D.C. Circuit has already held that the IDRA was modeled on D.C. Section 24301 in the Crutchfield case. The government, in its brief, did not deal with the Crutchfield case whatsoever. It did not mention it. It did not try to point out any error in it. And I think it incumbent on the government today to at least respond to the Crutchfield case and either admit that the holding in that case is correct or else explain to the Court where the error in that case is. What holding in the Crutchfield case, Mr. Chau? The holding that the IDRA was closely modeled on 24-301. Not the question involved in this case, but the question of the derivation of the IDRA. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. If there is any question about whether 
the IDRA was modeled on 24-301. I think it's important to to point out the similarities, and especially with regard to the disposition that's to be made of the accused in the event of the not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. Uh, It's true that the... uh, that the Congress made certain changes in the uh, between uh, 24-301 and IDRA. They increased the burden of proof from preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing evidence. Um, in the in the D.C. statute, the burden had been placed on the defendant to prove the defense. They kept that burden on him. They simply increased it to clear and convincing. Uh, there were other minor changes that dealt with the trial phase of uh, a, a, a criminal case in which the insanity defense is at issue, and all of those changes generally are to increase the difficulty on the accused of uh, successfully asserting the defense. But once the defense is successfully asserted, then the IDRA and 24-301 are very, very similar. Was it, was it the case that the, uh, that the D.C. courts that imposed this requirement under the IDRA purported to be imposing it because the statute required it, or was it simply a part of their own supervision of the, of the D.C. courts? Well, the, uh, <clears throat> the Lyles case um, in 1955 was uh, decided under 24-301. Uh, it refers to the, to the statute in the uh, decision. Does it say that this requirement of informing a jury is a statutory requirement? No, it does not, John. Ordinarily, you wouldn't expect the legislative body uh, that is enacting a provision governing a criminal, something to do with a criminal, to say, you know, what sort of instructions would be given, would you? Don't they usually leave that up to the courts? That is correct, Your Honor. I think that uh, it's difficult to think of of congressional enactments which um, prescribe for the court what instructions uh, they ought to give. In fact, I, none come to my mind, and there may be, I'm not saying there are none, but it is rare if it ever happens that Congress tells the courts what instructions you ought to give. But that's what you're urging here, are you not, Mr. Trout, that you, you get this requirement that the trial judge instruct the jury from the statute. You're not making any constitutional argument, as I understand it. No, I'm not making any constitutional argument. So you, you're pinning your position about what the judge must charge to this IDRA statute, is that not right? Or the supervisory power of this court to, to impose a, uh, the, the, the best rule uh, in the event that the court does not find that the uh, settled judicial construction of 24-301 was in fact incorporated into the IDRA, then the court still has the power to uh, require the instruction. Well, if, you do, if you're talking about some general supervisory power notion, then wouldn't your reasoning apply as well to telling a jury about a mandatory minimum sentence in a case? No. They'll know the defendant's exposure? No, Your Honor. You distinguish? The dif- I don't mean to interrupt yes, you, but... To, to distinguish the two. It's a question of the jury making an informed decision. Well... The the difference is this. Um, The jury has no role in sentencing, and I'm not here to uh, create some, uh, uh, urge some doctrine that would give the jury a role in sentencing unless the legislature does it by some congressional enactment. The only point that I'm advocating for is that the jury have the same knowledge about the insanity defense, the same common knowledge that it has uh, about guilty and not guilty verdicts. 
uh, jurors come into the courtroom knowing that not guilty verdicts mean the accused will, will be free if such a verdict is rendered. They also know that if they render a guilty verdict, he is at least subject to punishment. But they don't know necessarily what that punishment will be, but they do know he can be punished. Um, with regard to the not guilty solely by reason of insanity verdict, there is no uh, certainty about what will happen to an uninformed uh, layman. Uh, he, he or she simply knows that the verdict says not guilty by reason of insanity. And what happens to the defendant thereafter, um, the jury has no idea about. And quite frequently, we're dealing with accused who are, are violent and uh, at least, at the very least, are disturbed mentally. And the public is, is concerned both about violent individuals and mentally disturbed individuals. And jurors may well uh, feel compelled to uh, convict under circumstances where they would otherwise uh, feel that the not guilty by reason of insanity verdict was proper simply in order to prevent the release of someone that they see as potentially dangerous to the public. If the, judge, if the judge told the jury, now there is a requirement if you return a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity that this person go to a mental institution, a mental institution, but it is possible that he could be released within 40 days. That would be, you would have no objection to such an instruction. Well, I think that instruction is, I do object to that instruction, Your Honor, because I don't think it solves the problem that I am urging the court to correct. I think the instruction ought to be brief and it ought to be uh, concise, but it should simply, it should simply say, um, something like what the Sixth Circuit pattern instruction says, which is, uh, if you find the defendant not guilty because of insanity, then it will be my duty to send him to a suitable institution. He will only be released from custody if he proves by clear and convincing evidence that his release would not create a substantial risk that he might injure someone or seriously damage someone's property. Well, there, that's the good side from the point of view of your client. But if we're, if we're interested in giving the truth a totally, uh, the jury a totally truthful, accurate picture, why wouldn't one add what Justice Ginsburg said, that there could be a hearing in 40 days and he might first, that that would be his first opportunity to be released? Mr. Chief Justice, we're, we're, we're not trying to get the jury, I'm not trying to get the jury involved in what's going to happen to this man down the road or woman, other than to stay, other than to... Uh, Swatch whatever fears they have that they're going to release this man. Well, but uh, if, if he could be released in 40 days, maybe some of those fears are justified. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the, the act is so um, severe that... What do you mean severe? I mean severe with regard to the ability of an accused found not guilty solely by reason of insanity to be released. It is very, it's very restrictive and uh, it's very difficult, if, if not impossible, uh, in many cases for anyone who is successfully asserts this defense to subsequently obtain release. Uh, but, so, but you don't deny it's possible. It's possible. Well, it seems to me that you're just picking and choosing the parts of the, the effect of this verdict that, that would make the jury favor your client. Your Honor, I, 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 what I'm trying to do is, is honor the, the time-honored principle that the jury has no role in the disposition of the accused at the same time that the jury is put on an equal footing uh, that, they, that they're already on with regard to the guilty and not guilty verdicts. I don't think that it is wise to have the jury speculate about whether the man will be released or not be released. Uh, they may do it anyway, but, but this, this instruction will... Um, it will solve some of the problems that the present situation creates. 
And there, I, I don't suggest that there's any ideal solution to it, but I do believe it would be unwise to, to get into the detail about what happens, because uh, when I say what happens, what happens in the event of his acquittal on this ground and the subsequent commitment procedures and release procedures. Is there a D.C. Circuit decision you refer to as back about 30 or 40 years ago, I think, in the Lyle case? Have they adopted a pattern instruction that they used, you know? Yes, sir. You, you, why did you read us the one from the Sixth Circuit rather than that one? Because the federal government, I guess, is always a party in the D.C. Circuit case. Well, I guess well, the Sixth Circuit, too, of course. Your Honor, I did uh, include the D.C. Circuit pattern instruction in the appendix to my brief. And... Uh, how long has that pattern instruction been given, do you know? Uh, it's, it's, I've got two of them, both of them in here. It's, it's been amended slightly, but uh, it's been in effect since, roughly, uh, since the Brawler case in 1972. It's been, and uh, so the, the instruction is of long standing in the D.C. Circuit, and it was in effect... Is it a discretionary instruction that the district judge gives, or is it always given if the defendant asks for it in the D.C. Circuit? In the D.C. Circuit, it is always given if the defendant asks for it, and, but if the defendant does not want the instruction given, it is not given. Suppose that the trial judge instructs the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are not to speculate upon the disposition of the, or custody of the defendant in the event you find him not guilty by reason of insanity. The law has addressed that subject, and it is not your concern. Well, similar instructions are given, uh, Justice Kennedy, I, 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 uh, in every case, I believe. But I, I don't think that I realize the uh, the presumption is that juries follow their instructions, and that is necessarily a presumption that uh, we have to engage in in order to. For the, for the criminal justice system to work. And, but uh, to, to, to simply give them that instruction uh, with all the um, fear and uh, um, concern that jurors may feel about the accused in these cases is, uh, is, is expecting too much. Well, the trial judge tells the jury the law has addressed this subject. Suppose it added, makes adequate provision for the safety of the public. Well, I think that uh, surveys indicate, uh, many surveys do indicate, that, that the, the public as, at large uh, is very suspicious of the, of the insanity verdict. They feel like it's, it's used all the time and it's, uh, it's very successful and it's a loophole that... Uh, uh, criminals used to get through the uh, criminal justice system. Do you think that's wrong, and and that 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 a particular position should be taken in in, in telling well, the jury about it? I think it has to be wrong, Your Honor, under the IDRA. But be, uh, well, I mean, the public may think that that people at the 40-day hearing are simply judged too leniently, and that therefore they they, they get out after 40 days when they shouldn't get out after 40 days. Is the, must the court take a position on whether the system is indeed uh, operating uh, uh, well enough if the public wants to think that, if the jury wants to think that, in fact, uh, they're letting them out too soon? It must the court disabuse them of that notion by, by withholding from them the information that this person could be out within 40 days? <clears throat> Justice Scalia, the, 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 the reason to give the instruction, as, as I see it, is to uh, is to have the jury concentrate on the law and the evidence in the case, and uh, to and to bring in the 40-day requirement uh, is a uh, is there, there is some danger. Mr. Trout, I'm really puzzled by your argument because on the one hand you ask us to follow the example of the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit pattern instruction has the 40-day provision in it. Yes, sir. Seems to me you got to ought to take one position or the other. On well, the look to the D.C. Circuit for guidance. I think I have it in my brief, Your Honor, that if the the doctrine that I am asking the court to uh, follow is the incorporation of the settled judicial construction um, 
which was placed on the D.C. statute. Well, you, you said it wasn't. You said it wasn't a settled construction of the statute. I thought you acknowledged. No, that. sir. I did not acknowledge that. It was very well, settled. It's not a construction of any text in the statute, is it? No, sir. But it is a. It's a settled construction of the statute. Because it's a settled practice in D.C. when administering the statute. But as I understood your answer, the D.C. Circuit did not purport to be construing any language in the statute when it laid down the instructional rule that you're asking for. That is correct, Your Honor. Uh, but every decision is tied to the statute. Now, they're not construing a word or a phrase in the statute. I, I confess that. But it is tied to the statute. And, uh, and Congress knew that when it, uh, when it adopted the IDRA. It knew the practice. And, uh, and it, in fact, in the Senate report, it advocates the practice of the instruction. And I, will, I must confess that uh, a strict application of the doctrine of incorporation that I'm asking the court to, uh, uh, to adopt uh, would require the, uh, the, the, the model instruction uh, that Justice Stevens has referred to. I, I, don't, my, I personally don't think it is the best uh, instruction, but it is, it is the instruction which um, the D.C. Circuit has used now for, um, well, in its form, I believe, for, for over 20 years. And uh, it, would, it would certainly be a substantial improvement over the, uh, the present situation. Uh, Mr. Child? Yes, sir. Uh, in your, your Appendix E, starting on 37A of your brief, uh, there's an alternative A. Yes, sir. And then an alternative B. Yes, sir. And then on 41A, we have alternative A, Superior Court, which I take it is the D.C. Superior Court. Yes, sir. And then alternative B, District Court. Yes, sir. Uh, are all, is alternative A on page 37A, alternative B on 39A, and alternative B on 41A, are all of those given in the District Court, the District of Columbia? Uh, yes, sir. The reason for that, and I, I apologize to the court for just putting it there without explanation. The reason for that is that um, in the District of Columbia, some of the cases are going to be prosecuted under 24-301. Some of them are going to be prosecuted under IDRA, and uh, so uh, that's part of the reason for the alternative, because the, uh, the, the, the terms of the, of the statutes are slightly different, so the... Uh, is, is there... Do more than one of the various instructions I, I mentioned uh, uh, apply when the prosecution is under is governed by the IDRA? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't understand well, the question. I mean, there, we have an, an instruction on page 37A, an instruction on page 39A, an instruction on page 41A. Mm -hmm. Which of those are used when the IDRA governs? Right. <clears throat> Stop a minute, Your Honor, and remember. Well, don't take a lot of time from your argument. I, I, I was just curious. Um, the the instruction that is uh, that is is most important uh, is the uh, is the instruction five eleven uh, effect of a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity. And where is that? In the That's on page thirty six A. And then what are, what are the, the alternatives? Uh, they're given sometimes, perhaps? Well, no, they, they, define, the, uh, they define insanity and, uh, and, and give the substantive uh, nature of the defense. The, the 5.11 on 36A simply, uh, simply uh, gives the short instruction that informs the jury about the disposition that will be made of the accused in the event that he's found not guilty solely by reason of insanity. Mr. Trout, if, if I didn't agree with you as to whether this, this requirement is brought along by the statute, if I don't think it's a matter of statutory construction, 
but I do think that there's a question as to what the federal court should provide uh, by, under their supervisory power. Um, and if I think that they should provide this instruction, why, why shouldn't I think that they would also have to provide the instruction, for example, in a, ca in a case where there have been multiple crimes committed by a particular individual and he's been convicted of one of them already? Uh, it, it, must the jury know that this person is already under life sentence so that if you find him not, not guilty of this uh, subsequent crime, it really doesn't matter? Why is that any different from, uh, from what you're asking us to do here? It's different because in that, in that case that you pose, the, uh, the, 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 the defendant is on trial for, uh, for a crime, and, uh, and uh, the jury knows that if they convict him, he is subject to punishment. And that's all they, that's all they need to know. Uh, but, but you say they should also know that if they release him, he's not going to be turned loose on the public. You say that's very important for them to know. Why shouldn't they know that in this other case, too? It's important in the, in the insanity context simply because they, there's a void there, and they don't have any knowledge, or they may not have any knowledge, or they may have erroneous knowledge. But in the case that you pose, they have some knowledge, they have all the knowledge they need, to render a true verdict, which is that uh, that the defendant is subject to punishment, and, and that's all they that's all they need to know, and that's all the law has traditionally permitted them to know, and and I don't argue with that, and I don't think that the rule that I'm asking the court to adopt will interfere or or, or uh, weaken that principle in any way. Was there anything in particular in this case that, that might have led the jury to believe that the defendant would be released immediately? Um, Your Honor, there was nothing in the case that... Uh, that Or not treated at all? There was nothing in the case that, that would have caused them to believe that. Uh, it was not mentioned in any way. Nevertheless, the insanity verdict was something that the jury was concerned about. They sent a note back... Uh, to the court uh, during their deliberations, which is on page A9 of the uh, joint appendix, and it's uh, saying, we want you to explain the reason of insanity. Now, that, that note does not mean necessarily anything. I mean, I, I don't know what it meant, and the court didn't either, but uh, it could mean we want you to explain what caused this man's insanity. We want you to explain what the reason of this defense is. Really, uh, the, the note is, uh, is quite ambiguous and subject to a number of interpretations. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chow. Uh, Ms. Wax, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Petitioner's principal contention in this case is that it was error for the judge not to instruct the jury on the consequences of an insanity verdict because that instruction is required by the text of the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. As a simple matter of statutory construction, that contention must be incorrect. The Insanity Defense Reform Act does expressly deal with instructions of a jury. It requires the jury to be instructed that it can find the defendant guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity in a case in which the insanity defense has been raised. But it is absolutely silent concerning instructions on the consequences of an insanity verdict. Now, petitioner seeks to rely on the familiar canon of statutory construction that where Congress has adopted a statute enacted in another jurisdiction, and that statute has received a settled judicial interpretation, Congress must be deemed to have adopted that settled interpretation along with the text. Now, there are several reasons why that canon of construction does not help Petitioner in this case. First of all, the canon does not even apply here for the simple reason, as Justice Scalia and Justice Sewer have pointed out, that the D.C. Circuit, in laying down the mandatory rule of instruction in Lyles, was not engaging in interpretation of the D.C. statute. Ms. Weiss, can I ask you uh, just kind of a basic question? Let's assume the statute doesn't require it, because there certainly is nothing in the statute that says the text should be given. 
But, but there, the practice has been in the District of Columbia to give this instruction, I, as I understand it, for some years. Right. Uh, are you asking us to uh, decide a case in a way that will require the D.C. Circuit to change its practice? We are asking this court to lay down a supervisory principle, just setting aside the whole issue of statutory construction. We are recommending that this court, in its supervisory capacity, adopt the principle that, in general, the instruction should not be given except in the discretion of the trial court where there is affirmative indication that the jury has been misled or misunderstands the consequences of the verdict I and may be influenced. So, in a way, I'm saying, yes, yes you do we are asking. You, you yes. in effect, are saying that that practice has been erroneous for the last 20 years or so. As a rigid and flexible blanket rule, Yes, but not as a matter of... And the government's practice regularly to object to the giving of the instruction in the District of Columbia? Probably been a lot of these cases, I assume. Uh, Not that I'm aware of, that we we haven't consistently objected. We've just gone along with the rule in D.C. And it's important to realize... In fact, though, with the D.C. Superior Court, there's the same prosecutor but a different code. Exactly. The reason why the D.C. Circuit has this rule as a rule applying to the D.C. Code is that until 1973, the D.C. Circuit was the appellate court for D.C. law as well as federal law, and then there was a split. And of course, this just goes to the point of whether this is a supervisory rule. It was a supervisory rule adopted by the D.C. Circuit to apply to any insanity defense within its jurisdiction, whatever law it may have arisen under. Of course, Ms. Maxwell, you, you, you are now urging us to uh, state in a, a supervisory uh, rule that would go together with the uh, IDRA. Suppose the jury sends a note to the judge that says, if we return an NGI verdict, will the defendant walk? Should the judge respond to that? Uh, And if so, how, under your supervisory principle? Well, I think under those circumstances, the judge could reasonably conclude that the jury was tempted to uh, abandon its responsibility or its oath, that that the system, so to speak, was not functioning properly, that the jury was focused on something that they weren't supposed to be focused on, uh, even to the point where they may harbor a misconception about what would happen. And that might be the type of circumstance in which the judge should at least instruct the jury, again, quite sternly, that this was none of their concern, but could perhaps go beyond that and issue a curative instruction uh, to perhaps clear up any possible misconceptions about the disposition. No, he won't because I'm obliged to send him to an institution where he, where he will be examined. Yes, he could. I mean, he could, he could in effect issue a curative instruction that included the information about what would happen to the particular defendant. I think there are I'm other... I'm not sure certain- I understand, Ms. W- Ms. Wax, the, the basis for your, your answer to Justice Ginsburg. You said, well, first he could instruct the jury in very stern terms that this is none of their business. Right. But then if he wanted, he could add the instruction out. Now, which is right? It seems to me, it seems to me that if he has the discretion to give the instruction, that must mean that he has to give the instruction in some instances. Uh, what is to guide that discretion? I assume one factor would be if there was some uh, misleading statement by counsel to the effect that had to be cured. But uh, absent that, it seems to me that your answer is inconsistent. Well, no. If the jury says, um, will the defendant walk? Will he be instantly released? That, I think the judge can think that that's somehow equivalent to a prosecutor making the statement, and by the way, this defendant's going to walk, because it means that there is this notion in their mind which is inaccurate. When there's an, uh, an inaccurate notion in the mind of the jury, it is our belief that the judge need not just sternly admonish them to ignore the consequences, but can actually correct that misinformation. Well, let me give an accurate notion. What, what gave you the impression there's an inaccurate notion? The jury just doesn't know. But that's the same presumed state of facts even before they ask the question. The jury doesn't know what the effect of a DWI instruction is. That's all the question indicates. 
It doesn't indicate that they're under a misimpression at all. It just indicates we don't know what happens if we come in with DWI. And it seems to me if you say you can give the instruction when they come in with a question, you ought to say you can give the instruction even if they don't come in with a question. They ought to know what DWI means. Well, my understanding from Justice Ginsburg's question, and maybe I misheard it, is that they actually asked, will this individual be instantly freed, implying that they had a misimpression because, in fact, he's not going to be instantly freed necessarily. But let me just give an analysis. The question is, if we return an NGI verdict, will the defendant walk? That was... Right. Let, let me give it an analysis. Yes, the, ju the judge could, tell, could respond no. Well, no, he'd be Justice Ginsburg did not say that the question was, if we return a DWI verdict, the defendant will walk, won't he? That's a different question, and then I can understand your response. But if, if all I ask is, what will happen? Will, will he walk? Well, now we're getting into subtleties. Let, let me try and give an analogous example. I, I think that my, my response is in part uh, a function of the great deal of discretion that we give judges, district court judges, in issuing curative instructions instructions which try to correct misimpressions on the part of, of juries. I mean, if a statement came out in the trial about prior convictions, if, for example, a prosecutor tried to insinuate that an individual had prior convictions uh, in a particular case, um, and it turned out he had no prior convictions, I mean, that was actually false. We, I don't believe that the judge would be confined to just simply saying, ignore that comment on the part of the prosecutor, but he could go on from there and actually give the proper information, correct the misinformation. Ms. And Wax, uh, do you take the position that uh, in our supervisory power we should insist that every jury be told that they should not concern themselves with what happens to the defendant following their verdict, whatever it is? Well, it probably isn't necessary to insist on it, since I believe that it is generally the practice uh, in most federal jurisdictions, at least. That instruction was given here. Yes, it was, on page A8 of the and Joint Appendix. And you are satisfied that it is always given, so we don't have to concern ourselves. Um, I'm not going to say with absolute certainty that it's always given, because I haven't reviewed the instructions. But, in it, but this Court has never handed down some decision saying that it must be given. Not to my knowledge. But presumably, if that's given, uh, what additional instruction or rule is required by us? Maybe what's the matter with just leaving it there and letting the judge decide in the judge's discretion what ought to be done? That's what we normally do with instructions. Well, we do think that the judge should have a great deal of discretion, but we also believe that there can be such a thing as abuse of discretion in this instance. And the reason that we think that the judge should not be allowed to give information to the jury generally about consequences of the NGI verdict unless there's some affirmative indication that the system is not functioning is that there are other instances in which the judge could equally be allowed discretion to give instructions about mandatory minimums. Do you say that it would be an abuse of discretion for a trial judge to give a, a truthful instruction such as that given in the D.C. courts on, on what happens as a re following a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict? Is that an abuse of discretion if there are no special circumstances? And the trial judge gives that instruction. Well, I'm not sure that it would ever come to appeal necessarily, but um, I think we would take the position that uh, the judge should not be doing that. And district court, which felt otherwise, could ins could so instruct, I suppose. And as you say, the government could never raise it if, if there's exactly. an acquittal, and they'd have no interest in raising it if there's a conviction. Exactly. So I, when I say that I don't think it would ever come to appeal, that's precisely what I'm saying. It's it's sort of a theoretical principle, and uh, I don't a matter of principle. You take the view that's an abuse of discretion to give it. Well, I think it would be, I think this court should indicate that it would be improper because it would not be in keeping with the general principles that govern our system, which is that we don't ordinarily have trial judges instructing juries about consequences of verdicts, not just in the insanity context, but in a million other contexts in which the jury could well be interested in what's going to happen 
uh, could well be interested in probation, issues of parole, mandatory minimum, maximum sentences, whether they can make a recommendation of, of leniency, as the Rogers case uh, exemplifies. I mean, the fact is we're on a slippery slope once we sanction these sorts Has of things. Has slippery slope in the District of Columbia caused any people to slide down the hill? I mean, they've had the rule there for over 20 years, and they haven't had all these other problems, have they? I mean, any of them. They don't ask for instructions on parole or mandatory minimums, do they? I mean, it's theoretically possible, but in practice it hasn't happened. Well, no, but first of all, I think it would be a very different matter if this court uh, sanctioned those sorts of instructions and the reasoning and behind that. Them... One particular instruction that's been given for 20 or 30 years in a jurisdiction without any evidence of it creating any of the problems that you hypothecate. Your Honor, there's really no way to distinguish between that sort of instruction which opens the door to the jury speculating about the consequences of the verdict. And it's not as if this doesn't come at a price. I mean, petitioner tries to imply that this instruction can only help the defendant. And that's just not well, true. Because that's why, as a lawyer, if he doesn't want it, presumably he can ask the judge not to give it. But if one, one requested, the question is whether he's entitled to it. And in the D.C. Circuit, as I understand it, he automatically gets it. And, and I gather it's a pattern instruction that the prosecutors and defense counsel, everybody cooperated in drafting the particular instruction they gave. Well, it's just our view that this is not a necessary rule. And in that sense, we shouldn't have the rule, which is just another opportunity for error on the part of the judge that it's not a desirable rule. Or if you had a regular rule that you give the pattern instruction when it's asked for, there's not any danger of error there. You just either, you just do it. That's well, one of the beauties of pattern instruction. The problem is, of course, well, let me just say that the instruction that petitioner wants, that the instruction that he's requesting, is not really a terribly accurate or helpful instruction. He, he is oh, focusing... Would you not agree that the D.C. Circuit's instruction is accurate? It is accurate, Your Honor. Forty but, days in it, it has. Well, it does. But our position is that any jury that is going to be uh, is going to be swayed by its fear of what's going to happen to the defendant, instead of adhering to its oath and looking only to the evidence, is not going to be influenced by this instruction because this instruction provides no very little reassurance to any jury that an individual who might be dangerous is not going to be released. A person will at most be held for 40 days, and in fact, he could be sprung as little as a few days after the verdict, because the hearing can be held at any time within 40 days, and the person needs to show that he isn't going to be dangerous to others and the property of others, but that is a very different matter from the showing that needs to be made to succeed in an insanity verdict. Well, I suppose that's the defendant's choice to make if he has the option to ask for the instruction. But it's this court's responsibility to decide whether, in fact, it makes any sense to add yet another requirement, another instruction, when that instruction is out of keeping with the general, uh, our, our paradigm, which is that juries look to the evidence and is just of marginal utility and in some cases may backfire. I mean, we haven't talked at all about the ways in which this sort of information might lead to the jury to engage in compromise verdicts. There are all kinds of situations in which the jury's attention being brought to what's going to happen to the defendant might lead them to render a less rather than a more accurate but verdict. But as long as the, defend it's the defendant's option, why should we be concerned about that aspect of it? We have in this case a judge who refused to give a charge, and I'm clear on what your position is there, that there is no requirement the judge give the charge. I'm not clear yet on your answer to may the judge, if the judge, in the judge's discretion, give the charge. Say, for example, the judge has read a law review article that says 80% of jurors don't know what MGI means. They think it means the defendant will walk. And the judge said, I'm impressed by that. I want to tell them that that's wrong. Well, I mean, that... <laughs> That law review article has yet to be produced. Um, maybe at some point in the future it might be produced, and the, land, the whole landscape that surrounds this particular issue will change. But one of the pieces of information on which we base our position in this case is that there simply is no good evidence. It's purely speculative that jurors systematically misunderstand well, the law. All we have to do in this case, I suppose, 
to satisfy your concern immediately is to say the statute doesn't require the court to give the instruction. Right. That that is one. Certainly, don't one have a case here where the judge has given an instruction and there's some objection made, and perhaps we never will. But uh, to decide this case, we only need to answer that one question. Does the statute require it? Isn't that so? That's certainly correct, based on the argument that petitioner has made. But we have made the additional argument, and we think that guidance might be useful, though certainly not mandatory. Uh, It might be useful for this court to lay down certain guidance for the lower courts to follow, certain parameters. Ms. Wax, uh, the first question presented for review in the was the petitioner entitled to an instruction if he was found not guilty solely by reason of insanity, he would be committed until he was no longer a threat to the safety of others or their property. Don't you think that embraces not just an argument based entirely on the statute, but an argument based on supervisory power, too? It certainly can, Your Honor, and that's why we have made a separate argument both in our brief and are attempting to make one here, which is that certainly even if the statute doesn't require this instruction, and, and certainly it doesn't require it, that there still is a further question of whether as a supervisory matter uh, this court ought to have a certain rule about what lower courts should do. And I think that the Lyles case exemplifies a court of appeals deciding you know, what ought to be the practice in its jurisdiction. And as it's a if we reach that issue, would it be your position that the instruction should sometimes be given not only uh, at, a, at a defendant's request in the case that you uh, gave in your hypothesis, uh, but at the state's request as well? Yes, under appropriate circumstances. What would, the, what would the circumstances be in which the state would be entitled to it? Well, I'm having trouble thinking. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking. Well, what if we had Justice Ginsburg's uh, law review article uh, on the bench again? Uh, wouldn't the uh, wouldn't the prosecutor be free to make the argument, uh, uh, Judge? Uh, the, the most jurors don't know what NGI means, and I want them to know uh, that anyone found NGI can walk in 40 days. Is the prosecutor uh, would the prosecutor be entitled to that instruction? Under our under our theory, I don't think the prosecutor would be entitled to the instruction. Why not? Because, because our view is that in the absence of a particular indication that this jury, in this case... No, but the law review article wouldn't be enough. No. That, that would be our view. If the, if the judge is, is giving the instructions and not guilty by reason of insanity and the jurors are shaking their heads and rolling their eyes, at that point he can, he can uh, exercise discretion and tell them more? If there, our view is that we presume that the system is functioning properly in the sense that the jury... They presume it if they're shaking their heads and rolling their well, eyes. Well, no, that's a particularized set okay, of circumstances. Okay, now, they shake their heads and they roll their eyes. The prosecutor says, I want them to know that in 40 days he can walk. Is the prosecutor, on your view, entitled to that instruction? Uh, I, th- I wouldn't say no to that. It would have to be, Would you though. say yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that that is very different from this case, and I haven't really thought through what it, the it state is, would be entitled is. to. Yeah, because I think one of the premises of this case is that the defendant is it is the defendant who is in effect making without making it a sort of quasi due process argument that it's essential to the protection of their interests. Yeah, but we're now concerned with supervisory authority, and if our criterion for exercising supervisory authority is that the jury ought to have an accurate sense of the consequences that will follow upon the return of a given verdict. Why doesn't the prosecutor have just as good an argument for saying he can walk in 40 days and I want them so instructed uh, as the defendant has for an instruction he can't walk tomorrow? Right. Well, I I think if there's been an affirmative breakdown, an indication that the jury has really gone astray, I think probably the prosecutor could get such an instruction. What, what if a jury in a, in, a, in, a, in a criminal case that has a number of counts, first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, there's some indication that the jury thinks that manslaughter, punishment for manslaughter is that you're going to lose your driving uh, driver's license. Did, must that be corrected? D- does the jury have to know what the, what the increment of, of, of punishment is for, for each of the uh, verdicts that it's going to bring in? Well, you mean if the jury says, sends back a note and says, we want to know, 
what's going to happen to this person's driver's license. Right. Yeah, we're, we're very concerned we, about this. We, we have no idea reasons. what the consequences of first degree versus second degree versus manslaughter. We have no idea what the consequences are. Please tell us how long does this person spend in prison, if any time at all. Okay. Must the court uh, respond to that? Right. Well, once again, I would distinguish Justice Scalia between a case in which the jury has has expressed a sort of vague concern with consequences. I don't think the court must, and I don't see any reason why that's different from, from this case. I don't think the court must. Well, I think a line has to be drawn somewhere. But it seems to me very odd, Ms. Wax, that if uh, you reserve this instruction for the jury that is transgressing its authority, then they have the advantage or the disadvantage of, of knowing the extra information. It, it seems to me your position should be uh, that the more unfocused the jury is becoming, the more the judge should stick to the letter of the law and say, you must follow the instructions I have given you. These matters are not your, of your concern. If you have the jury ready to go off the path, it seems to me that this is the one time when you should insist on the instruction. Well, I, I, it, it seems to me this is a very uh, uh, odd calculus you're asking us to accept, that the one time we give this instruction is when the jury is about ready to go off in the wrong direction. Well, once again, Your Honor, it really depends on the circumstances, as with all curative instructions, well, as with all I'm cases in which... To give some guidance to the district judges as to what those circumstances are. As in all cases where juries send back notes, asking specific questions, or saying we're concerned about this and they're not supposed to be concerned, or we harbored this misconception that just simply isn't true, the judge is going to have to make a judgment about how much they need to tell the jury to get them back on track. And I don't think it's possible to lay down a blanket rule except to say that the presumption of regularity has to apply in general, despite, you know, law review articles or background information, the presumption that the jury will stick yeah, to the yeah, evidence will apply. Raise one question with you again, forgetting presumptions and hypotheticals. What has the practice been in the District of Columbia for the past 30 years? Does the prosecutor ask for this instruction? And if so, is it given? The practice has been that the instruction is given unless the defendant objects. That's my understanding, that it's given as a matter of course unless the defendant actually objects to the instruction being given. And that's I suppose you have to be a pretty stupid jury to think that you're given three choices, guilty, not guilty, are not guilty by reason of insanity, and to think that the last two have exactly the same consequences. It's sort of, you know, this is, this is my brother Daryl, this is my other brother Daryl. It's, it's ridiculous. Isn't it ridiculous? Well, it may be ridiculous, but that was, in fact, the practice in the federal system for a long, long time, wasn't it? Well, as a Actually, formality... Of insanity was a walk. Not in reality. In rea- it, was, it was only formally, but not in reality. And just as... You have to go through a state commitment, civil commitment... That's right. You had, to, you had to give the defendant over to the state, but in fact, the federal system tried very hard to ensure that those procedures took place, and a fair number of people were committed. And there's no reason to believe that people didn't know, and especially after the Hinckley verdict in 1982, that people somehow think that individuals who are acquitted by reason of insanity are instantly released. There's, there's no reason to believe that. And beyond that, that even if some of them do think that, that they're going to act on that belief. The court has no further questions. Thank you, Ms. Wax. The case is submitted.